Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people, and today we have a great guest all the way from New York City. Welcome to the show, Jenny Blake. Thank you so much for having me, Victor. I love your show. Thanks for the kind words. Great to have you here. Now, I've got to know some of your family members over the last couple of years, and so it's great that we got connected. You and I actually have something in common in that we have a tech background uh, together as well. You were previously at Google. Maybe why don't you give a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey? Sure. My first job while I was still in school at UCLA was working for a political polling startup. This was leading up to the 2004 presidential election. And that was, that was fascinating to try to take political polling out of phone banks and move it online. That company later got acquired by YouGov America. So it's fun seeing them dotted throughout the press now, because at that time, everyone was very skeptical that it could be done at all. And now, as you and I both know, no, hardly anyone has landlines anymore. From that job, I moved over to Google, as you mentioned, in training, coaching, and career development. I was there for five years as it grew from 6,000 employees to 36,000. And then about a decade ago now, I took a chance on myself and decided to leave. I gave myself six months to see if I could make it as a small business owner. And here we are 11 years later. Thank goodness. (laughs) Knock on wood. Wow. Now you've just written your second book. Maybe once you talk a little bit about your first book, and I think there's a segue into your second book. Sure. So Free Time is my third book. This is the new one. Free Time, Lose the Busy Work, Love Your Business. That's for small business owners. The previous book, Pivot, came out in 2016. And I had this feeling that the the motto I had for that book is if change is the only constant, let's get better at it. And I could see that the stability that we had in previous generations career-wise just didn't exist anymore. And at, at that time, when I started working on the second book, a lot of the media and the press was about these millennials, these entitled millennials that just can't stay put. But I could see the trends both within my work at Google and outside of it that people were pivoting and getting pivoted by choice and by circumstance. And I had friends who would quit their job, then they would go out on their own, then they might get hired at a startup, then the startup would get acquired, then everybody got fired. And so the writing was on the wall that the stability was just, it was on its way out. And yet people were feeling so seemed to be so lost and confused and about mapping what's next. And so that's really where, what inspired the book pivot. And then of course, in 2020, we all experienced daily pivots on a global scale. Absolutely. And for those that got stuck in the mindset that they were just waiting for things to return to normal and they sat on their hands, maybe watch Netflix or whatever, hoping that things would return to normal, they really suffered the most rather than those who embraced the change, accepted it for what it was and said, okay, now it's time to, like you said, pivot. Yeah. And I know, you know, it was, even your podcast is in the realm of real estate. My brother works in real estate. There was so much happening at an individual, national, global level. And I think what's hard is that even people who want to be proactive in these times, when there's no stable ground, it can be hard to know what to do. And I know for many people who own real estate, if you had tenants, there were questions about, are people going to pay? What are the laws of the temporary you know, policies being put in place? And So it's very, it's such a dynamic thing. And for business owners and certainly anyone in real estate, I don't think those skills are new. It just really called 
all of us forth to pause as well. And instead of just reacting during these times, and as you said, kind of sitting and waiting to see what happens, also looking for opportunity. And I think you know better than anyone, Victor, just the entrepreneurs who are the most successful are the ones who are really looking for the gaps and taking these tumultuous times and really making something new from it. And what I saw and tried to do myself is, is creating something that's even more aligned as well with each person's individual strengths. Because part of the message of these last few years is that life is short and nothing is predictable. So we may as well pivot and go in directions that are more aligned with our values and our goals and even spending time with our loved ones. Absolutely. So fast forward to your latest book, Free Time. Tell us what that book's about. Yeah, Free Time is about working smarter with smarter systems while staying for for people who run small businesses, those who want to stay delightfully tiny. Not everyone has dreams of managing hundreds of employees. So free time is really aimed at small business owners who want to stay small, but don't want to have that pressure of, as Michael Gerber says, constantly working in the business and feeling Sometimes, you know, as small business owners, we become our own worst boss. (laughs) We're the ones that are the most demanding of ourselves, working around the clock or juggling too many things, or even as a manager and leader, answering everyone else's questions all the time and sort of that fractured attention. So free time is really about helping all of us free our time through smarter systems to do more of our best work and most strategic projects. In almost every business, Even when you have systems in place, most of the systems are geared towards the success case, the normal case, what is routine. And then what becomes a limiting factor are managing exceptions. So all the exceptions bubble to the top of the house for a decision. And 80% of senior management's, and and I'm saying senior management as if it's a big company, but that applies to all businesses. 80% of senior management's attention goes towards managing those exceptions even once you create those systems and have those systems in place. I mean, that's so true. And I think where it becomes clear too, is that if, if we don't have the basics systematized and not in a bureaucratic way, but just where everybody knows what they're doing and the team is empowered to solve problems on their own, then those exceptions do become all consuming and everything else starts to fall apart. I kind of think of the business and business systems like a property, you know, like a a house, It, it gets, Oh, things start falling apart. The, there is no stasis. In fact, entropy is always at work in structures, physical structures, and in our businesses. So I also think sometimes we think that we have the basic use case of our business. We think that we have it systematized when in fact, things are falling into disrepair and they do take some attention to detail. And I know I'm speaking somewhat abstractly, but one thing I realized in these last few years is that without revisiting some of those core functions of the business and the systems behind them and the process. Actually, a lot of what I had was out of date or there was software and automations that I could put in place now that might not have existed a few years ago. So the opportunity is always there. And then that is what, by streamlining with what we do know, I think that is how we free our mind and our time to focus on those edge cases, as you said, those unpredictable events where we really have to be all in and focus. Absolutely. 
I mean, the key to growing any business, uh, you don't necessarily have to grow to thousands of employees, but the definition of a small business is still a, can often be a pretty decent-sized business. That You could still have 80, 100 employees, and that would still, in today's world, be classified as a small business, which is not a small business in my mind, because when you actually do the math, it's a, you know, we're talking tens of millions of dollars. And yet with that, the key, especially for the leadership, is to multiply yourself. The biggest trap that I see people trying to overcome is this whole issue of delegation. You can delegate work, but that isn't the same as delegating responsibility. And I see a lot of people delegating work and it all comes back to them at the task level rather than necessarily having delegated responsibility. And in your experience, how do you get people to make that transition? Yeah, well, I cite one of my favorite articles, the HBR article by William Onkin in the book, the story, maybe you've heard it, Victor. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe this, maybe many of you listening have heard this, but of the manager who people come into their office with a monkey on their back. And by the time they leave, all the monkeys are sitting on the manager's desk. Right. And the monkey is a parable for projects and tasks that, yes, it's one thing to delegate the task. And what I found was that I, at one point in my business, I got good at delegating tasks and projects but people were constantly coming back to me with follow-up questions and leaving their monkeys on my desk, <laughs> you know, just looking to me to make all the critical decisions and help them when they got stuck. And so part of delegating the responsibility and not just the task, one, I think is being very explicit and saying, I am delegating this to you in its entirety. Do not let me be the bottleneck. And I tell this to my team all the time. I remind them week after week, do not let me be the bottleneck. Keep moving. Tell me what you're going to do and by when. And if I don't respond in time, then that's on me. And if there's some negative consequence of that, then I'm aware of that. And what I'm thinking to myself is that there's not so much in the business that could go catastrophically wrong if I didn't weigh in with my input, but that the team knows not to wait and let that input hold up the process. So I think that alone starts to shift things. And then something that I've learned from my brother, who is how I learned about your show, Victor, you know, he and I just reread the book Traction over the holidays. And this is really about each person owning core metrics in the business as well. So I found, you know, Peter Drucker says, what gets measured gets managed. I don't necessarily think that's true. I think you can measure a lot in the business and do nothing about it and see the numbers every week. And then if the team doesn't feel inspired to improve the numbers, then they could just report stats for their area of the business. And that's where it stays versus each team member owning improvement around those metrics. So another thing I've been trying to reinforce with my team is not only do you own this area of the business and not only do you own this metric, you own running experiments, AB tests, split tests to improve these few core metrics that you own. And a lot of that was inspired by rereading traction, but just reinforcing that someone is owning the outcomes not just the inputs. I'm pleased you mentioned that book. That's a book that we use. We actually use three books uh, in managing our business. Traction's one of them, Rocket Fuel's another, and uh, Good to Great, um, Jim Collins. And we take the content of those three of those books, and that forms the framework of our weekly Level 10 meeting. Uh, and that's straight, straight out of those books. You mentioned Rocket Fuel. I'm curious, Victor, do you have an integrator someone serving in that role in your business or a chief of staff? We do. We do. It's actually, it's distributed across a couple of people right now. We don't have a single integrator. I would say that we have two right now within the core team and uh, it's, it's vital, absolutely vital. 
And do you see yourself as the visionary? Yes. Yeah, because it's been amazing. I loved your episode on how you produce a daily show. And so it's, it's, it's amazing and inspiring to see how you've carved out that time to do what you do and the thought leadership, the podcast, I'm sure so many other things as the visionary of the business and then supported by, in your case, it sounds like multiple integrators. We have multiple integrators. And yet, you know, even today, you know, I'm here on a, in a quarantine area on a resort in Mexico and I'm reviewing legal agreements. So I'm also still very hands on where, you know, one of the key functions that is often overlooked, and I come from a hardware development, software development background, so this was ingrained at a very, very young age for me, and that is the whole idea that if something's not tested, it doesn't work. Those words just ring in my ears daily. If it's not tested, it doesn't work. So what is testing? Testing is quality assurance. So does a document go out the door without being reviewed? Well, if it goes out without being reviewed, it's broken, guaranteed it's that simple. So who is in that QA function within any business process? And if there's no one identified in that QA function, then you're sending junk out the door. You're sending out things that are going to be of low quality. So we often ask ask ourselves when there's any deliverable, who's performing QA on this deliverable? And if there's no one identified that to me, that immediately flags the problem. Because as you know, having been in business for a number of years, having witnessed a number of businesses, the number one reason why things fall off the rails is you look at a particular task, a particular function, you say, whose responsibility is it? And nobody's hand goes up, or maybe even worse, the answer is, well, it's everyone's responsibility, which also means nobody. So it's, you know, making sure that those key functions are staffed. Here's one more question for you. Do you have checklists in place for different types of QA in your business? And the reason I ask is that sometimes we have team members looking over things. What's interesting to me is that as the owner, how much more I catch still on different QA aspects of the business that I wish team members would spot. I know it's different people have different strengths and areas for development, but I'm curious how you ensure that the people who are QAing really do it up to your standard, if that's even possible. Yeah, it's it's a great question. It's a continuous learning exercise for sure. I mean, we, we are constantly adding to the checklists. There's a certain element you can, you cannot, um, I make the distinction between training and education. Training can be a little bit paint by numbers, but it's not going to get you a Rembrandt. It just isn't. So there needs to be a, another layer of thinking that goes deeper than just the paint by numbers. Checklists will only get you so far. They're, they're a guide and they're helpful. You know, for example, I ran quality uh, organizations in hardware design because, you know, when you're designing microprocessors that have, you know, millions of transistors, there's so many, just thousands of ways these things can fail. So the fact that these things come out and work at all is nothing short of a miracle. Now, you can only test in a certain amount of quality. There just aren't enough test hours in our lifetime to get it done. When you go and do the math on the permutations and combinations of all the possible test cases, bugs are going to get out there. And they do. I mean, look at Microsoft Windows. You will never get through the testing matrix on Microsoft Windows ever in your lifetime. So they ship it with bugs and they know that. So then the question is, how do you get it out with sufficient quality? What what approach are you taking that's going to get it out there with sufficient quality? And the checklists are there to help, but they, they can't be a, a complete crutch. Yeah, it makes sense. And I know sometimes things just need to get out. I know you, you probably feel this way with your podcast. I knew I, I know that I do with mine that 
keeping up with multiple episodes a week, you do triple what I do. Almost none of them are perfect. So I think there's also that sense of uh, Dan Sullivan. He wrote a great book called The 80% Approach of just getting things 80% done and then delegating the rest that there's such diminishing returns when we do focus on the utmost quality for every single thing. In a sense, that can be paralyzing as well. Absolutely. One of the things you wrote about in your book is this notion of transitioning from friction to flow. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, this is the central diagnostic of the book. And as business owners, it's really about asking each person and to look at within your day-to-day role and the business as a whole, where is there the most friction? And where are you in flow? And certainly we can learn from the areas that we're in flow. Although research shows that when things are going well, we're less alert, we're learning less, we're just in the moment and we're flowing. The friction areas are really where we have a chance to improve. And that can be friction of the work is no longer aligned, the types of clients or properties or deals that you're doing are no longer aligned or there's something on the internal operations side that is creating friction. So it could be a certain team member, it could be the way process is getting done. But if we look at where is there the greatest friction and we solve for that, we can help improve just the flow of the whole business and and of the day-to-day. Because I think we can all say that friction just slows us down and some creative tension and some friction is good, but when we're experiencing excessive friction, that's where there's really an opportunity to reimagine and redesign. I love it. Well, Jenny, the book launches March 22nd, correct? That's right. Yep. March 22nd, 2022. If folks want to connect, if they want to pre-order a copy, what's the best way? Go to itsfreetime.com. If you go to itsfreetime.com slash book, if you're listening to this before March 22, you can get an early copy of the audio book via private podcast feed if you pre-order And uh, you can check out the free time podcast wherever you're listening to this one. Fabulous. Well, love the perspective, love the book. And for the listeners at home, definitely connect with Jenny at itsfreetime.com and go to itsfreetime.com slash book to pre-order a copy and get a copy of the audio book. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. And we'll talk to you again tomorrow.